0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So, wow, what a treat. Sangha, the third jewel. I think that uh, one of my experiences of, of Sangha is, for some reason, we really just want our best habits to show up in sangha, isn't it? It somehow pulls for the best of us. And I think that it, you know, waters those seeds. It um, promotes those tendencies in us. So tonight I'm going to talk about mindfulness. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I'm sure many of us here have been practicing a long time and it's, it's surprising just how popular mindfulness is. It's like we always knew that it rocked, but it's nice to know we're getting validation from the larger community. Mindfulness pretty much rocks. So um, I want to talk about it. And, you know, I, I like to um, just tell you my particular my particular interpretation of any words that we apply to the Dharma, even any sutta study, you know, we know that, was it the Seventh Zen Patriarch uh, was sitting in practice and a student came up to him and said, um, I have the this sutta, can you explain it to me? I think it was the sutta Nibbana. And uh, the student, I think it was a nun, asked him or her or they, to um, expound on the sutta, and he said, well, you know, I can't read, so if you read it to me, maybe I can explain it to you. Maybe we can have a discussion and I can talk about it. And she was just, you know, she was totally surprised and said, you're like the most senior monastic here. How is it that you can't read? And he said, well, you know, the suttas, all of those concepts are like a finger pointing at the moon. You know, it it uh, points us in a certain direction, but it's not the truth. It's just a finger pointing at the truth. So, I just want us to think about that, that any way that we can get at the truth that is most useful for us, you know, particularly in 2016, I think that's a, that's a useful thing to think about. And as a college professor, That's my Panya Mana. That's my wisdom conceit coming in, or my knowledge conceits. It's good to see that. Um, That's true of any narrative, right? Of any narrative, of Western science, or even any spiritual tradition, that it's a finger pointing at reality. But how could words, how could it really capture the depth of reality? So... Back to mindfulness. So I'd like to start off by um, reading what many people say may or may not be an old Cherokee story. So, an old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He has wisdom, joy, peace, patience, serenity, determination, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, and faith. This same fight is going on inside you, he told his grandson, and inside every other person, too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked the grandfather, which wolf will win? I'm sure many of you know the answer to this. The old Cherokee grandfather said, the one you feed. I love that story And then I was reading one of Ajahn Chah's books and was really surprised to hear him tell pretty much the exact same story. So I want to read this story to you in Ajahn Chah's words. And just for those of you who may or may not know, Ajahn Chah is one of our spiritual grandfathers. He was one of the main teachers in the Thai forest tradition in northern Thailand. And he's the the wonderful monk who ordained a lot of our monks like Ajahn Sumedho and Suchito. And also he was a Jack Cornfield's teacher. So here's what Ajahn Chah says about that. This path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depths of our hearts. However, if the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If maga, the path, is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. If, if, the defilements that are, if it is the defilements that are powerful and brave, while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dharma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed and defilements take its place. The two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. That sounds to me like pretty much the same story. And I think it you know very simply points out of why we practice. You know, why are we doing this mindfulness? You know, it's wonderful. It's excellent for stress reduction, absolutely. And it's also good for so much more. So much more. So, one more quote by Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion or another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, and unless they are immediately overpowered with a proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate. Reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind, and adding more and more karmic imprints. So this is why we practice to really do this work of cultivation. We're cultivating, you know, the 10 paramis, uh, the opposites of the um, greed, hatred, and delusion, generosity, and wisdom, and loving-kindness, so this is why we do our practice. One of my dear friends, uh, Musha Makita, who is a teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center, says, she has this talk entitled, and I, I, I uh, recommend that you go on the East Bay Meditation uh, website to listen to it. The title of the talk is, I know that mindfulness practice helps me, but I don't do it. Can anybody relate? (laughs) We know it's good for us, but what is it? What is it that's keeping us from just taking that seat? But, you know, the truth is that mindfulness practice is not just for the seat. I'm going to say a little bit about delusion and what the Buddha taught about that in a minute. But I only have, like, 15 minutes left. I have so much more to tell you. (laughs) So, um, you know, why don't we take that seat? So some of the reasons why we don't take the seat, these might resonate, is that we are preoccupied with external fixes. What are some of the external fixes to all of those um, things that we see in our heart that are hard to open to? Maybe drugs or alcohol. Sex. Sex is a really good distractor. For People of a certain age. (laughs) As an older person, I could tell you that is such, so wonderful to not be pulled by that so much anymore. I'm sure you older people will probably agree with me. Spending, shopping. It is such a distraction. You know, we look to that for some comfort or some sense of removal from you know, the causes and conditions in our life. Personally, I have a a little fetish with grocery stores. (laughs) It's hard to pass a grocery store for me without saying, hey, I've got an extra 10 minutes. So what are some of the other ways that we evade these afflictions and what else we do besides practicing mindfulness off the cushion or on? Oftentimes we blame and we project our suffering onto others. Oh my gosh, I'm thinking of our relative in Orlando. So much suffering there. Who really projected a lot of his pain onto others. Blame. Projecting and blame. Blame is one way that we evade opening to this heart and mind in this moment. One, um, one particularly strong affliction for me that I realized, actually I think it was on the three month retreat you and I sat at the same time, was I had this, uh, this very strong overlay of self-pity in my heart and mind. You know, I grew up pretty poor as a woman of color, and uh, I didn't realize how much self-pity there was in the lens that I viewed the world. And it was a shock to me when I realized that there was a thick lens there. But it was such a liberating thing. I, you know, Because it was so pervasive, it was like this lens that I viewed all of life through. And it wasn't until I was doing very intense practice that I had really strong mindfulness that I was able to see this lens and, you know, it's so wonderful to see all of these afflictions that we have because at that point we can start deconditioning them in our heart and mind. You know, after after I was able to see self-pity, you know, many times when it arises now, or I would see, oh, that's self-pity, that's self-pity. And it, as soon as I would see it, it would just like melt away. And... um Uh, So, just giving you one of my little stories. And then the other, another one, another way that we can evade uh, just opening with some wisdom to what's happening with this heart and mind is torturing torturing ourselves with guilt. You know, uh, there's two actually very wholesome conditions in uh, Abhidhamma that we learn about, hiri and otapa. I'm sure many of you know these. I think it's hiri that's fear of wrongdoing. You know, just a sense that, you know, I don't want to do harm in this world. And otapa is shame of wrongdoing. And that's like taking responsibility and saying, wow, I caused harm in this world. But that's different than guilt. You know, shame of wrongdoing is taking responsibility and saying, you know, that was, caused harm, there's karmic impacts of that, and I set an intention not to do that again, to see the greed, hatred, and delusion that that action was based on, and to not, re, not to uh, act that way again. Where guilt, on the other hand, is very self-focused, isn't it? It's all about me, 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 me. I did this, I did that. So there's really a difference. So, what is the antidote to this? What is the antidote? And we're all here practicing that. It is our sati, sati sampajanya, yeah. our mindfulness. So, one of my uh, dear teachers, Rodney Smith, has a way of putting. Uh, he he actually, I got this uh, term from him. He says that we have two knowledge systems. We have our, uh, our linear conceptual knowledge system that helps us name and count things. It's very important. It's not necessarily true, but it can be very, very useful. And then we have a knowledge, another knowledge system, and that's this intuitive awareness. Intuitive awareness knowledge system. And I like to say that mindfulness is the data collection system for intuitive awareness. You know, with mindfulness, we're just looking deeply at things as they unfold. You know, with not a lot of thinking, we might use a note here and there to keep us connected, but not trying to figure anything out, right? In fact, when we realize we're trying to figure something out, we use the soft mental note of thinking, thinking, to just let go of that. It's a deeply ingrained habit patterns in these heart and minds. And it's really good to decondition that and call up that thinking mind when we need it, but let it go when we don't need it. Actually, uh, one of my favorite analogies of the thinking heart-mind right now is our email inboxes. We all have our email inboxes. What proportion of emails do you think that you get that you actually want to read and are worthy of reading and responding to? What proportion? Actually, <laughs> What? Two, right. Actually, I was talking to, who was it? I think I was talking to Nancy, who picked me up from the airport. She said, oh, 50%. I was thinking, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> I would say, for me, it's probably like 20%. And uh, that, I think, is a good analogy of the thoughts and emotions that actually arise in my heart and mind, I mean things that actually have any wisdom to it or any any positive qualities that I actually want to nurture or uh, act out in the world, you know how much of the thoughts that arise just being in the world, then that's what you know our mindfulness is paying attention to, what thoughts our feelings or Um, interpretations are happening at any moment. And many of them are just so absolutely ridiculous. You know, like the 80% of emails in our box that are just crazy. You know, like, oh, guess what, you just got added to the list of the most important academics in the country and all you need to do is send us $300 and we'll send you the book. <laughs> right? Oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, most, uh, many of the thoughts, you know, the, uh, how greed, hatred, and delusion shows up for me is, you know, in those thoughts and uh, responses just to the world as I walk around. So I have five minutes left. Wow, that was quick. So what we do is we practice our mindfulness to see clearly, to see beyond those. And um, I like to talk about mindfulness as this middle way. It's actually um, Anilayo in that wonderful book, Saripatana, I'm sure many of you have read it. It's available free online. If any of you haven't read it, it's by Biko Analayo. And I think it's called Tadipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, maybe? And actually, Joseph Goldstein's new mindfulness book is also a fabulous book. That's not available free for download yet, but it's definitely worth buying. So Analayo says, I think I have a quote by him here. He points out how uh, mindfulness, one of the most important aspects of mindfulness is to clear up perceptual distortions. Another important teaching that the Buddha has is about vipalasas or distortions of the mind and how we're all raised in this culture that is essentially, um, you know, commodifies every relationship. And uh, is racist and sexist and homophobic and ageist, and you know, name whatever stratification system you know that we were all raised in. We were all raised in that, and I can see sexism and racism and homophobia and um, and uh, gender bias, and you know, all of that. I can see that here and um, that's what we take because we were um, raised in that system we have that view I mean those views those very deep-seated beliefs that we don't even know that we have or how we organize the world and based on that view that influences how we perceive things you know it influences what we see when we look at something those views actually get interpreted even in what we see when we look at things. And in that perception, uh, those perceptions, um, they um, influence our thoughts. Thought, certain thoughts come up around that. And we you know, have opinions about things. Those 80% of emails in our mind that just make no sense and have absolutely no root in reality. And those... Uh, thoughts actually, in turn, continue. If we don't check them, if we can't see clearly that they are erroneous and that they are based on false views, it continues to actually support and continues that view. You know, the Buddha taught there are four views that are, you know, all they're very common. Essentially, they're aso- associated with the three characteristics. We see things as permanent that are not permanent. Things are changing all the time. We uh, believe certain things like accumulation or status or ego things are actually going to bring us satisfaction. Things that could never bring us satisfaction. We believe, because of that false view, that we need to just get more stuff and we'll be satisfied. Uh, We believe that We're independent, you know, uh, living creatures based on a particular view of the world that is not an indigenous view, I must say. Um, You know, we believe that we're individual and that we have to take care of ourselves to the detriment of everyone else. You know, we believe in a solid, abiding self that's separate. And then the fourth vipalasa, the fourth... Distortion is seeing things as beautiful that are not beautiful. And I'm still really exploring that one. But, you know, I think about our poor relative in Orlando who, you know, had such distorted views based on greed, hatred, and delusion at the social level, at that view level, at his thoughts level in that moment, At his level of perception, you know, who created an incredible atrocity that we are all suffering from. You know, how are we to hold that? Aren't we right to be angry? Aren't we right to just be incredibly either, you know, either uh, to wallow in self-pity and think, this world is just crazy, I'm never going to be safe in it or to be just so angry that we want to strike at ourselves? What is the re- appropriate response to that? What is an appropriate response? How can we hold it? And you know, I'm not saying I have any answers whatsoever. I'll tell you, for me, I know a few things that, uh, I read a recent piece by um, Thurman, Robert Thurman, and he pointed to three things that we can, three uh, tendencies we can try to water in times like this. The first one is just to understand our relationality. And I love that. And I think that's very indigenous. You know, I'm in a, I am a, a mixed race indigenous person and I hang around a lot in Indian country. So this is very resonant with me. We are all related. You know, there's a Lakota. Any Lakotas in the room? I'm going to borrow from our Lakota relatives who say, oh, me mitakviyasen. All my relations. All my relations. That's the first thing that we need to do is just realize that we are not, you know, that we are related to this person who has done this harm. The second thing he advised us to remember from a Buddhist perspective is that we too are capable of that. And we might all think, oh, I'm not capable but you know, when we watch this heart and mind and that 80% of things that are arising I mean how much of that are we actually believing in the moment without any mindfulness you know the ways that we're treating each other you know based on those false views that we don't even realize we're doing because we're not bringing some attention and mindfulness to that moment we are all complicit in that I got bad news That's what I'm seeing here. So for us to wag our finger without realizing that this is a common human experience and we are capable of that and we are perpetrators, you know, that's my newest mantra today. You know, until full enlightenment, we are all perpetrators. And then finally, his uh, recommendation, and I loved this, was that to just... You know, think about the karmic influences, the karmic impact of an act like that. You know, we, of course, are going to, you know, I guess the government or the powers that be on our behalf, and they are doing it on our behalf, if we don't say anything, um, are going to take action. And even if they didn't, I absolutely have seen the truth of karma. And that's one thing that could be the, could be the um, cause for compassion to arise in our hearts is just the karmic in the karmic uh, impacts of an act like that, an incredibly despicable act to you know target some of our most vulnerable relatives, our beloved queer community, our people of color community, our young people community, and just to target you know to have that much hate. It's, um, but in some regard, I've seen that here, in that 80% of emails that go unchecked. So mindfulness, one of my dear colleagues, Michael Yellowbrook, calls it, we practice mindfulness for neuro-decolonization. We can decolonize our heart and minds of all of that greed, hatred, and delusion with mindfulness. To just know, wow, that's, you know, that's greed in my mind. That's, you know, craving. That's anger, that's hatred. That's total dismissal. And to just see that, and to see that with curiosity and openness and even some humor. Because it's not personal. We all have that inbox. And with mindfulness, it goes to the junk folder. <laughs> That's an interesting analogy. I just made that up. <laughs> but without mindfulness, it's in the inbox, and we're acting on it. So I'm over my time, I just wanted to leave that as some thoughts for us to think about how important mindfulness is and how we can start right here. Right here, and I want to. There's another thing out there. Uh, there's another uh, trend, something that's trending that I think is going to get bigger. It's a. It's this idea of something called knowledge democracy. Knowledge democracy. I love it, and uh, it's really about how there are different ways of knowing. There are, and these ways of knowing are related to our relationship to the world, right? And that we, uh, with the rise of Western ways of knowing or Western science, it killed off a lot of other relationships to the world. And what we want to do right now is reclaim them and give space for them to flower. And mindfulness is an excellent, you know, intuitive awareness is a, Spiritual way of knowing that you know we can actually we don't necessarily personally i don't think we need neuroscience to justify that. I think that it uh, deserves its very own um, you know we can regard it very positively and use uh, and useful without having to justify it with another knowledge system that spiritual ways of knowing intuitive awareness, wisdom coming from spiritual practice and spiritual values. It's okay. It's I believe in it. I'm going to invest in it, and I think you know it's a wonderful sangha element that we can invest into. But so I would like to leave it there and leave it open to um, thoughts, any uh, bits of wisdom you'd like to share with the sangha.
1: Um, you, mentioned you you've seen karma work,
0: and I wondered if you might give an example or two? I don't some thoughts came to mind but I don't want to necessarily talk about what's happening with broader politics in the U.S. right now. It's like we get the leaders we deserve. That's kind of sad. You know, all the things that are happening around us well, I could look at climate crisis and say, that's an excellent example of karma, right? I mean, uh, there were people in the world who had a different relationship to so-called nature, you know, which to me is just the nature of reality, who didn't necessarily think that it was to be owned or exploited you know, without any um, thought to the impact of it. Just for the uh, benefit of human beings, and uh, I think that that's an excellent example of karma. That that's not a really sustainable relationship to the world. I was reading this great article. You could Google and find it. It's called uh, "Beyond Epistemicide Knowledge Democracy." It's you know open access paper, and there is a, a poem in it. and I love the poem. It's four lines. It's uh, The law condemns the woman or man from stealing the goose from off the common, but leaves the greater felon loose who stole the common from the goose. It's actually a 15th century poem. It was the poems and discourse that was arising uh, to, uh, it was a common of common people to actually industrialization. 15th century. Um, Okay, it was, uh, I'm just going to paraphrase. The law condemns a woman or man who steals the goose from off the common, but leaves the greater felon loose who stole the common from the goose. And if you just Google uh, beyond epistemicide, and uh, here I'm getting all ponied mana here, Um, You know, epistemocyte was the killing of ways of knowing, right? Epistemology is ways of knowing. And there's wonderful, uh, there's a wonderful history right now of that, of the rising of Western knowledge. And please don't think I'm saying that Western knowledge isn't great. It's great. It could be very useful, but it's not necessarily true. And those two things are very different. So... um, you know, this the um, the um, his, historical account now is that that uh, Western knowledge development thinking itself the only way to develop knowledge. I mean, that was that was it's the big uh, maybe greed and deluded part of the rise of Western knowledge or Western science was that it thought of itself as the only legitimate way for knowledge to be developed. So it killed off. And in this one recounting by this brilliant um, Brazilian philosopher of science, he says that there was four uh, knowledges were killed off. It was first, actually Jewish and Asian knowledges were killed off. The second was um, indigenous knowledge and relationships to the world were killed off. The third was um, actually African Oh, did I say African? It was uh, African and Asian was the third one. The first one was was Jewish. The second one was indigenous. And the third was actually women's ways of knowing. I recently was talking to this wonderful woman who was a midwife and an herbalist, and I was thinking, wow, if she lived 100 years ago, they would kill her. So, and I think mindfulness is justice against epistemicide. It is cognitive, cognitive justice. It's us using this way of looking at this heart and mind and coming up with some deeper wisdom. Not accepting the received view of these narratives or or seeing how these narratives are colonizing us and really doing something, some deep work to uproot them. And we can wag our fingers, we can, but you know, it really does start here. That was a lot of blah blah blah. Knowledge democracy. Let's have some more wisdom. Yes.
2: I've been listening to a lot of like Pema Chodron lately, and she actually told a story about um, Leonard Cohen, uh, and he did like a 12-hour meditation one time, and they asked him how it went, and uh, he just said, you know, eventually you just get so sick and tired of your own story that's running through your mind, that you know, the less there is of you, eventually, you know, the, the happier you kind of become. Um, that's just kind of been really uh, helpful for me lately and kind of, you know, being mindful of the story that's c- just, you know, constantly running all the time in your head and um, just being able to have a sense of humor about the, the richness of that story and how it just, you know, is very complex and ongoing.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Sadhu, Sadhu. You know, that's really true. And right now, I'm actually doing the opposite of that, which is probably just as bad. I, when, everybody, when anybody says anything nice about me, I discount it. That's kind of like, that's actually uh, mana, you know, in the of uh, I'm Actually, the Buddha had this wonderful teaching about mana or conceit. And uh, we all have these conceits. We can understand it's, it's easy to understand a conceit of I'm better than, you know, Panya mana, I'm so smart. But there's also worse than conceit. And that's what I'm working with right now. That's what I'm seeing. Uh, all of my teachers are calling me on that. Like, really, do you have to always comment when somebody says something nice about you. It's like, yeah, that's right. Why do I do that? So, yeah, but that's excellent. You're absolutely right. These stories about ourselves, and they're stories of better than and stories of worse than, or just these uh, reactions that we have. Right now, you know, I think my reaction to anything good said about me is like, oh, but I don't even really exist. But it's deeper than that. I think it's really rooted, right? I mean, the truth is we really don't exist the way we think we do, but... What? You're down down with it. And it also, I mean, I can't think that I have totally deconditioned internalized depression either. I mean, I've got some ways to go in that. So, thank you for that. I love Pima Chudrin. She rocks.
1: Yes? Okay. Um, So I'm Robin... Um, And something that you talked about in terms of the distortions of perceptions and seeing something that's beautiful that's actually not. Um, I feel like that's related to almost every external intoxicant um, that we use to distract ourselves from it being sex to being television, things that we think bring such beauty and comfort into our lives is really overshadowing all the things that we don't want to deal with in our practice. that I think we often don't feel like we're strong enough to deal with in our practice. Mm. Um, And I think that's something where I've been struggling and trying to connect the mind to the heart or even a little bit of that guilt of finally being at a place where seeing this practice takes some roots, even though I've questioned for the longest if I've been doing it right. And it's like, okay, I'm seeing in my actions, things change and it feels weird. It feels fragmented. Like I'm nourishing the good wolf, but it feels weird to not be grasping for the grief or the delusion things that brought me even temporary relief and comfort for most of my life. How I dealt with you know, the stressors of life and it feels fragmented uh-huh. and trying to get to a place of, of wholeness, even with this no self, but wholeness with without having all those, those bad seeds kind of flourish. Even when I'm trying to create a solid guard garden of beautiful fruits and everything else and Buddha Um, (laughs) and still having these pollens and and pesticides come in so trying to reconcile both of those if there can be a balance between the bad wolf and the good wolf in this practice of trying to get to truth or enlightenment Mm -hmm. that's deep (laughs)
0: sadhu sadhu so um, well you know one of the things that we can do in response to what you said which is you know I'm just going to say it it's suffering right it's dukkha one good thing is that you know each of the four noble truths has a verb associated with it right and the first noble truth the verb is it is to be known. So congratulations. (laughs) You're knowing dukkha. So yeah, so the question is, where is there comfort in that? That's what I heard. What I heard was a question of what can we, you know, what can we call for comfort in that? So for me right now, and you know, it changes all the time, but um, two things. One is that Opening to uh, dukkha, even about what happened in Orlando, wow. It actually can be the cause for compassion to arise. And compassion actually feels good. It's like a tenderness of the heart. Or that's how I'm experiencing it now, is it kind of a tenderness, but it actually does feel good. It's like a tender love. Just a holding, a witnessing, and then the second thing that I'm playing with right now, and this is going to sound really crazy, and but I'm going to take it. I'm going to take a chance, and I'm going to say it. Should I say it? Okay. So you know, we all graduated on Friday, and uh, this was something all of the women were saying to each other. It was like you know, we talk about trusting relationships and. How much uh, ongoing satisfaction can you get from relationships? And how much are we uh, disappointed by partners that we have? And I'm engaged. I say that as a newly engaged old person. So, you know, I've invested in relationships. But I actually said, okay, I'm going to say it. It's a crazy thing. I have decided that the Buddha is my boyfriend. (laughs) It's like actually, there are teachings about visualizing the Buddha, about just visualizing uh, the wholesomeness of this person, and just uh, the Buddha as a refuge. I mean, that's what we're looking for is refuge, right, from this suffering. And so I actually have been using that. And I've had the experience, I, you know, one of my biggest places uh, is just feeling this profound loneliness. Existential loneliness, but you know there have been experiences during mindfulness and uh, retreat practice where I felt the exact opposite of it—of actually being held by this incredible field. And uh, at the time, I was raised Catholic, so for me, the way I explained it to my teacher was like, "Gosh, I felt like Jesus was holding me." Actually, what I think it was was just kind of a dissolution of duality. It's like there is no other because, and just a profound sense of intimacy. You know, the profoundest intimacy beyond anything I've ever had with another human being, or another being at all. So for me, that's what I'm playing with right now. Just putting it out there it might sound a little crazy, but the Buddha is my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> or he is, my, he is a significant other. Uh, this is just a quick visualization that I got when you mentioned the word um, neurodecolonization. I, I just pictured, and I'm going to use this too, um, My the habits of the neurons colonizing and colonizing and just... <laughs> <laughs> there they go. <laughs> <laughs> so did you kind of blow them up or...? What was it uh, when? Yeah, when I saw it. Yeah. You know? When I really. So during during you know my practice. Yeah, when you're colonizing, I'm use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know. Well, no, when I'm decolonizing. Yeah, there you go. When you're decolonizing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. That's beautiful. You know, my teacher Joseph Goldstein has a similar has a similar. Um, strategy he uses, you know, there's a teaching in the Buddha sutras about how to deal with difficult emotions, and there's like four things that you do, you know, you open to it, you investigate further, I, I can't remember what the third thing is, I'm, somebody would remember, and the fourth thing is you just out, you just say, no, you're not coming up anymore, mm-hmm. and the way he does it, he actually pretends, and I guess... Now with gun control, it might not be a good analogy, but he says this. He actually has a little fake gun that mm. when the thoughts rise it, he's going psh, psh, psh. <laughs> <laughs> and that really works for him. It like gets rid of it. Have yeah. you heard him give that talk, Mark?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: I know. Yeah. Oh, it's busting apart. So it's like so it's like a you know yes. that, that are my habit. Oh, I my love brain. that. Now it is. So they're gonna they're going to to resettle. I love that. So your bad habits or your habits based on greed, hatred, and delusion are like blobs of neurons that are colonized by that and your mindfulness is breaking them up. <laughs> I love the image. Thank you. <laughs> I like it. That's that's actually a little bit that might be, you know, that's a good alternative to the gun, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. See, knowledge democracy. Questions? Gentle criticisms. Should we get this? This a gentle, quick, gentle criticism. Thank you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much for your teachings. Um, I have a question about, it's a practice question, so appreciated you talking about um, the delusion that keeps us from practicing. Um, and I find that there are times when it's easier to notice um, or when it's easier to sort of to, to let go of these defilements of greed um, in particular. And times greed? When, greed, yeah. And times when it's really sticky and hard. And there's a lot of what um, a Mexican friend of mine calls justificaciones or justifications, you know, that are really... Um, Compelling, (laughs) so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, just working with the justifications that we um, or that that arise in relationship with um, attraction, sense, desire. um, You know, wanting to talk about how wholesome it is, or no, I really need this, or this is really a helpful thing. When we, when when there's wisdom, kind of knows the real deal. Mm-hmm. So if you could maybe speak a little bit about that. Thank oh my you. gosh. You just gave the answer though. <laughs> but then it doesn't necessarily cut through. And then, then I find myself right. doing what it is that I, wisdom knows. Honey, why are you doing this? Right. And then uh, the justification is saying, well, this is why I'm doing it. It really makes sense.
0: Well, so. <laughs> you just laid it out pretty clearly. <laughs> you know, in that in that moment, maybe there's a little... T- bit more delusion than there is wisdom, because we don't, you know, we don't let go of anything wisdom lets go of things, and, uh, you know, that's why our mindfulness is so important. Maybe what, you know, one response, and there might be others that people could say in that moment is, and I always say this when people are on retreat, is that when you want to go for that cup of tea, if you really want to do it, go do it, but just try to, with your mindfulness, just be really aware of how much enjoyment you get out of that. Because if you can extract just, you know, the level of enjoyment that you get out of it and that there might be certain enjoyment until saturation is reached and then there's really no enjoyment at all. If you're able without a lot of conceptual overlay and, you know, not a lot of judgment in your mind too, just to see that clearly, hopefully, you know, you will collect enough data about that and some wisdom will arise about it. I mean, that's one way to say that, but it sounds, you know, it sounds, okay, I'm going to say something, I'm just going to say it. It is, you know, we don't need to necessarily beat ourselves up about it either. I mean, that's the next thing to decondition, right? Is uh, that, hey, I still have greed, hatred, and delusion. How surprising. (laughs) Welcome to humanity. You know, the other way to actually deal with that is Um, just to consider ourselves part of an exquisite club, you know. My uh, partner actually got cancer last year, and it was so interesting opening up to it. I just felt like I had joined an exquisite club because so many people get cancer, and I had never had that so close of an experience, and I really felt held by a much larger community. So maybe that would be one way to think about it is like, you know, I am being held by a community that is just obsessed with grocery stores. You know, it's like, oh, my community, the grocery shoppers.
2: (laughs) I'm in in your community.
0: (laughs) Are you looking for what's on sale that week? (laughs) Or what's been discounted? (laughs) Sister. (laughs) And we can open to it with humor and compassion. Maybe one more.
3: You mentioned uh, Orlando quite a few times. And I'm going through a period where I'm just trying to avoid falling into complete fear and, uh, I don't know, depression about what happened there. And and part of it's why when when you're talking about wisdom versus delusion... And these kinds of counterpoints, and truth versus fiction, and these the good and the bad wolves. There's already been two narratives developed around this incident, and they boil down to he's a radical, was a radical Muslim, or a self-loathing homosexual.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And the fear that I have is that we'll never know where that truth really lies. And we won't know because a lot of people don't want us to know, one reason, but we may never know what was really in his mind or in his heart. And so when we talk about karma two years or a year from now or ten years from now, as a result of what happened, how do we know if it's the good karma or the bad karma? I hope this is making sense.
0: It does. Well, first of all, thank you for bringing up Orlando. You know. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, How do we know whether something is good karma or bad karma? That's a brilliant question because we often don't. Often sometimes what we think is our bad karma actually turns out to be our very best karma, right? If we lose a job or break up with somebody it 's like wow that 's terrible and then it turns out to be one of the best things that ever happened so regarding this um, i don 't think that we can know um, what will be the uh, the karma and you know the other thing is to not say the people who died that was their karma. I mean we have to be really careful of that because we have all. Done innumerable good things and bad things in innumerable in numerous lifetimes, so to just say, Well, they deserved that is really you know um, watering the seeds of delusion and hatred, so we have to be really careful of that, but I think that we can 't know that I mean um, you know what that' what this is going to reap hopefully uh, you know i 've been really pleasantly surprised about how many people are coming out and saying, I stand with Orlando. So that's made me really happy and made me feel like people are embracing um, uh, groups of people who have been historically very marginalized. So that, you know, I think that that's, you know, there's going to be good karma coming from that. But otherwise, I think it's impossible for us to know. That's what is coming to my mind right now. I have absolutely no certainty about what I'm saying right now, which is usually the case. But um, let me see what else. You know, I think all we can really uh, wonder about and work on is how we are responding in the moment and how we are even responding to hate and rejection and to, you know, how we're responding to greed, hatred, and delusion at the social level, the interpersonal level, at the personal level, what is our response to it? And, you know, what is the, you know, that we can inquire what is the wisest response in this moment? And it's not to deny our anger. You know, one of my very favorite Dharma talks is Carol Wilson talking about stomping meditation. We have to open to that anger. And, you know, if we have to stomp around in a circle for a week, I think it's wholesome to do that because there's a lot of discernment with anger. We just don't want to act in the world with greed, hatred, and delusion or with anger because that does have karmic implications. But if we do, we open with a compassion for ourselves for doing that. We're human. We're not fully enlightened. I belong to an exquisite club of angry people right now because of Orlando. It's an exquisite club. So, those are my thoughts right now. I don't know if that addressed anything you said, but thank you for bringing it up. So, we are out of time. So, um, coming together to practice like this is an incredibly wholesome thing and produces a lot of merit. And if you don't, if you agree, I would like to dedicate all our merits to our relatives in Orlando, to the families of the 49 people who died, and to the community there, and to the family of our Muslim young man brother who perpetrated this heinous act of violence and hate, to, to him and to his family to all of the community down there, all of our queer relatives, our LGBTQ community, to our Puerto Rican and Latino community, to our young community, to all of us allies who are trying to decolonize our homophobia and our racism. May all of our merit go for some peace and ease for all the families of the dead. May all beings have clarity. May all beings have compassion. May all beings know the truth of things as they really are.